Alrighty guys, welcome to Adventure Radio. Today, what we have for you is a very interesting conversation with with, with Seth Shostak. Too many S's. <laughs> with Seth Shostak. Seth is the lead astronomer, uh, senior astronomer and director at SETI. SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We are down currently in, um, in Silicon Valley in California um, at the SETI Institute now where we've done the interview. And basically what SETI is out to achieve is to explore, understand, and explain the origin and nature of life in the universe. So the search of RT, basically. Um, we had a great chat, talked about a lot of cool stuff um, where we are looking how we are trying to find this um, uh, intelligent life, what would happen if we were to find them, so on and so forth. What did you think of it, Jack? Yeah, very interesting dude. Um, obviously has one of the coolest lives in the world, everyone would be very jealous of what he gets up to every day, just looks for aliens out in the world. <laughs> um, and yeah, just super smart guy, made me feel super dumb. <laughs> um, couldn't get enough of it though, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. And um, yeah, he's just a very intriguing guy and it's a great listen. Yeah, no, I had fun, it was good. I, I also felt stumped a lot of the time and uh, but we want to try and bring you guys more of these interesting uh, science figures and... and uh, and academics and um, yeah, put ourselves out of our comfort zone and <laughs> see, what, see what we can do. But anyway, it's a cool inter- uh, cool interview, pretty interesting. So hope you guys enjoy it. Before we get into the interview, um, we are sponsored by Audible. So if you want one free audio book and a 30-day trial with Audible, if you've been thinking about testing out the, testing the waters of um, audio books, then check out Audible for sure. It's a sick way to listen to books, um, get information in whenever you're on the fly, whenever you're um, kicking around the house, it's uh, it's really good. So, Audible has two hundred fifty thousand, over two hundred fifty thousand audiobooks in their catalog. And to try them out, head to www.audibletrial.com forward slash advf radio. That will get you free thirty days and one free audiobook. Also, we're sponsored by Adventure Fit Travel. Adventure Fit Travel is an adventure travel company for the fitness community. And if you want to test your fitness, then why not do it with us in Nepal? We're heading to Everest Base Camp September to, through to October for 15 days. And um, yeah, it's basically the Kumbu, through the Kumbu region, the Everest Base Camp trek all the way up to Everest Base Camp, climbing Kalabatar on the way, which is an awesome experience where you kind of feel like you're looking eye to eye with Everest, which you're actually not. You're miles, miles below it. But it's, uh, it's a good buzz. It's really cool learning the Nepali culture and you make heaps of friends along the way. So if you want more information about that or any of our other trips we've got going on, go to www.adventurefittravel.com. And here's the show. Now, before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one, no touching of the hair or face. And that's it.
Alrighty, so we are back with Adventure Fit Radio. We're sitting here with Seth Shostak. My brother Jack is with me. Hello. <laughs> for his uh, for his second podcast ever. And um, yeah, we're in we're in the SETI Institute in Silicon Valley in San Francisco or in uh, in California. Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Bill. Cool. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Seth, a bit of your background and um, yeah, what uh, what got you into searching for extraterrestrials. Well, I got to say, my background has been considered interesting enough uh, to, you know, stultify a room full of fins. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not terribly interesting. Let me just say, I studied physics and astronomy, and I actually worked for many, many years uh, studying galaxies using radio telescopes, so mm-hmm. giant antennas try and see how fast galaxies spin. That turns out to be interesting in terms of understanding what the universe is made of. I've been to a lot of radio observatories, including, you know, around the world. I even worked in Europe for a while. And then eventually I got into SETI, which is what this is, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So we're looking for aliens. We're looking for aliens that are clever enough to build a radio transmitter we might be able to eavesdrop on. So that's what we're doing now. Beautiful. So what, um, what got you into um, astrophysics, into physics itself? What got you, in, you into the sciences as a young kid? Well, I was always interested in science. I mean, that's just a fact. I have a lot of interests. It's actually kind of a curse to have too many interests. But uh, as a kid, certainly interested in science and uh, took a lot of courses, of course. When I went to college, my father suggested mathematics, but I didn't feel I was very strong in mathematics. So I went into physics. It seemed a little more intuitive. (laughs) And I studied physics as an undergrad. And then as a grad student, I, I switched to astronomy because astronomy, you know, there were all those pictures on the walls of nebulae and planets and Mm. stuff like that. I mean, that seemed pretty good. Not to mention all the cheesy sci-fi films I had seen (laughs) as a kid, so uh, that helped. What's your uh, your favorite cheesy sci-fi film that got you up and running? Well, they're all cheesy, the ones (laughs) I I particularly like. Uh, The original War of the Worlds, actually. The uh, the Martians come to Earth, you know, uh, just to to take over the place because, after all, we deserve it. Uh, (laughs) I I didn't think the remake was all that good, but... the originals of, of a lot of the classic sci-fi films, which were made mostly in the 50s, uh, appealed to me. Also, the, the uh, creature features. They had a lot of uh, nuclear tests, mm-hmm. uh, which would cause things like you know, ordinary ants to suddenly become eight feet high at the yeah. shoulders <laughs> and then immediately invade Los Angeles, as if <laughs> ants have a lot of interest in Los Angeles. Um, okay, beautiful. So what about Planet of the Apes? Were you a Planet of the Apes fan? Well, I kind of like Planet of the Apes. I mean, the idea was kind of nifty, you know, that uh, they go to a different planet, but it turns out that the different planet is our planet. On the other hand, the idea that evolution would lead us to, you know, uh, look more like our simian forebears doesn't seem very reasonable to me, actually. I don't think that we select for features. I mean, look, think about it. Uh, Does your boyfriend or girlfriend look more like an ape than it does like a human? Probably not. And if, if it does, not. you probably ought to get, ought to get help. Not. Right? So I, I, I don't know that they have evolutionary pressures in the future that would turn us back into apes any more than the evolutionary what pressures. What about turning the, the apes into us? Well, turning the apes into us has happened once, so at least there's precedent for that. But, you know, it's sort of like, do you think humans will eventually look like trilobites again? I doubt it. Trilobites? <laughs> yeah, first time we've had that word used on Adventure Radio. Definitely. So there you go. Hashtag trilobites. Um, <laughs> Okay, so tell us about SETI. Tell us about the history. Um, when did it get started? Um, who, who founded it? What well, are we doing here? listen, the idea of trying to pick up signals that would tell you somebody's out there, that's actually a pretty old idea. And even going back to the 1860s, there were a couple of physicists in Europe who thought 
it would be good to try and signal the Martians, right? And see if they're making any signals that we could see. There were, there were claims back in those days. There were flashes of light coming from the moon or Mars. It might be due to inhabitants there. It wasn't very well founded, and of course it didn't work. But, uh, so the idea is old, but the, the modern attempts to try and eavesdrop on ET date to 1960. A fellow who actually works here, uh, Frank Drake, used an antenna in West Virginia to try and eavesdrop on signals. That was the first modern SETI experiment. Right. So Frank Drake actually still works currently in SETI, in the SETI Institute. Well, he does. He's, you know, in his mid-80s, so Frank uh-huh. doesn't come to the office every day, no. But uh, I see him every couple of weeks. He used to come every day well up into the age of 80. So That's interesting. Um, so we'll touch on um, Frank Drake just in a second, I think. But so f- how is SETI funded, though? Like, how does it... Uh, how does it keep its head above water? How's SETI funded, Bill? Well, I think the answer is poorly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the SETI Institute here uh, has about 80 or so scientists. And, but most of those, all but you know, a handful, are doing what's called astrobiology. In other words, they're interested in life in space, but not necessarily the intelligent variety. They're mm. interested in life that might be under the sands of Mars, yep. some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, that kind of thing. And they are funded by grants from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration from NASA. Mm-hmm. SETI is run totally on the basis of private donations. That's that's a real problem because there's very little money. Yeah, for sure. So a large part of everybody that works here under the SETI roof is actually not working to find those signals for... Uh, they're for not looking for intelligent, life. intelligent yeah. life. Yeah, they're looking for biology, yeah. but it's okay if it's, you know, about Microbial. as... The IQ, yeah, the IQ of your... Ag- Average bacterium. Yeah, about as exciting as underneath your fingernail. Well, that's right. I mean, it would be exciting, actually, because at least you would know that biology is not a miracle. I mean, if you found, you know, biology on a moon of Jupiter, you'd say, I don't know, Bob, but uh, obviously life is all over the place. Yeah, that's right. So let's, so talking about Frank Drake, so there's the famous Drake equation, and I have heard of it, and, and, uh, and I've, I've looked at it, and I've, I've, but I touched on it just before, um, before I came down here in the car. Um, we but we don't we, understand it. <laughs> yeah. But for um, people out there as well, why don't you explain the Drake equation and how it, uh, how it works to finding and uh, the chances for life out there in the solar system? Well, every time you mention an equation, you lose about half the audience. So <laughs> I'll probably mention it about six or eight times. The, the, uh, the Drake equation was cooked up by Frank Drake actually in 1961 because he had done this experiment in 1960 in West Virginia in which he'd used an antenna to try and eavesdrop on some signals. And that generated uh, quite a bit of interest, at least among some members of the science community. And so he had a small meeting the next year, also in West Virginia, invited about a dozen people, very, very clever people, actually, won, won a Nobel Prize during the conference, actually. Uh, and he, as an agenda for the meeting, he cooked up this equation, now known as the Drake Equation. And all it does is try and estimate, look, how many societies are out there in our Milky Way that are broadcasting signals that are going through our bodies as we sit here? It depends on how many planets there are and how many good planets there are and what mm-hmm. fraction of those planets have developed life and so forth and so on. So there's seven terms in the Drake equation. We don't know the value of too many of them, but it's a good starting point for discussing the subject. Yeah, for sure. So what's a, what's a relative estimation of, um, of, of life out there? I mean, how many... Have you? I'm sure you've put some percentages on paper and done some figures at some point. Like, what are the chances that there is something out there? Do you have any mathematical equations that say? Well, it isn't the math that's the problem. It's the data that's that are the problem yes. because you don't know what fraction of planets have ever cooked up life. I mean, we now know that the number of planets that could support life—in other words, there's some liquid water, right? 
It isn't, you know, a perpetually frozen planet or perpetually boiling planet. I mean, we have some idea of how many planets you're talking about. In the Milky Way galaxy, which, of course, is just one galaxy, but in the Milky Way galaxy, there are tens of billions, at least tens of billions of such worlds. So it sounds kind of promising. I mean, they, they can't all be sterile, can they? Well, maybe they could. I mean, I don't know. doesn't seem likely to me, but, of course, you don't know until you know. And so we, don't, we, we can't compute any of this. Uh, all, all you can say is, Earth is the only planet where biology has taken hold, and not just biology, but eventually clever biology, then Earth is some sort of miracle. And normally in science, saying that something is a miracle is usually not a very good explanation. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So to all the skeptics out there, because a lot of people say, uh, obviously there's, um, there's uh, the Fermi paradox, obviously. Why haven't we been visited? Why haven't we found somebody? Why, have, why haven't they come to us? Um, but And we've, we've been able to, I suppose look relatively closely at our own solar system, um, our own range of planets in our, in our neighbourhood, and there we haven't found life there yet. But I mean, we've only really been able to... to um, we've only really been able to look closely enough at our planets in our backyard, and we're one out of, what, six or seven in the backyard? Planets? No, we're, we're, there's life on Earth. So there's oh, one out of yeah, six. Yeah, you know. there's six or seven other planets in our solar system that could... Have life. That is to say, they have some liquid water somewhere, or some sort of liquid. In the case of Saturn's moon Titan, it isn't water, but it's liquid natural gas. Okay, maybe you get some life there too. Yeah, mm. no, we, we, our reconnaissance, I think your point is, our reconnaissance of the universe has been very limited. I mean, the fact that we haven't found anything so far really doesn't mean too much. I mean, you know, you could go into the red center of Australia and look at a, a, a couple of hectares of real estate and not see any kangaroos, but it does prove <laughs> there are no kangaroos in Australia. Yeah, that's right. Definitely. Well put, Seth. That's precisely what I was trying to say. <laughs> um, so what about in our solar system? So what's the, um, what's the most likely place in our, in our little backyard that we could find life? Is it on Mars or is it on Europa, the, the moon of Jupiter? Or whereabouts are, we, whereabouts are we looking? Where's our biggest bang for our buck there? Well, people differ. If you walk down the halls here at the SETI Institute, you'll find that the majority of the research done here is actually study of Mars. So I, I suspect if you took a poll... You know, what's your favorite inhabited world in our solar system? They, they, they probably would say Mars. That would probably win. But not, not necessarily, because there are, indeed, some of these moons of Jupiter and Saturn that are very intriguing uh, because they have liquid water, too. And so maybe those are better places to look. And in particular, some of these moons, you know, you might be able to find the life a lot more easily than on Mars. On Mars, the surface of Mars is going to be, it's going to be dead, Jim. I mean, mm -hmm. it's very dry. It's very cold. <laughs> There's no liquid water on the surface. So you have to dig down a couple hundred feet. You know, that's not so easy unless you can send a drilling rig to, to Mars with all the people to, you know, make it work. Whereas some of these moons are a little more accessible in some ways to whatever biology might be going on. So there, there may be a different answer to which world is more likely to have life, which world is the easiest to search for life. And they may not be the same, same place. Okay. So Europa is one, um, one of those other options, but... We can't get there to really survey the um, life on Europa because we can't drill down to the water. Is that correct? Europa's well, you can. Got... You can. All you have to do is write to check. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the problem because there's, there's this ice on, you know, the daytime temperatures on Europa, are, I don't even remember, like minus 270 degrees. Chilly. So, so the, yeah. So that ice, I mean, it's, it's not like the ice in your fridge, right? That ice is really solid. It's like granite. It's that yep. cold. So to drill through it, I mean, you've got to melt your way through. Mm -hmm. And how much ice do you have to go through before you hit the water underneath? Well, it might be, you know, 15 kilometers. Mm -hmm. 
That's a lot of ice. Okay. So, yeah, it's not impossible. I mean, if, you know, it became a national priority to drill a hole on Europa, <laughs> you, could, you could do it, but, you know, it takes some money. So now, in, in terms of getting there, how do you think it would be um, likely in terms of one of our lifespans? Life Same air bill. Well, we, we just have a spacecraft. The Juno spacecraft just got to, uh, to Jupiter. Oh, really? Right. Yeah, Europa is just another moon of Jupiter. So it's, it's there. It took five years to get there. It's a, it was a very fast spacecraft, by the way. But, uh, yeah, you know, it takes five years to get there with a fast spacecraft, Super 10 fast. years with a slow one. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, getting there, you can do it. I mean, that's been proven. There have been a lot of spacecraft that have gotten to Jupiter, very few that have been able to stop and, you know, sort of hang out. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's not the problem. The, the, the problem is not so much getting there, but then you need the drill and all that stuff. And then the question is, all right, that may cost you a billion bucks. Yeah. And is that the best, is that your best shot? What what do you think about this um, this funding problem that we have with uh, with obviously um, NASA and what you do and and studying the study of space and the study of trying to find life in the in the solar system? It's is it true to say that it's um, it's very very poorly funded like SETI down here? Like how do we how do we break through that? Is it is it very pop, uh, Is it very important to have people like yourself, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan back in the day, like all these science promoters and science um, popularizers, that's so important to bring it to the public's... Well, obviously, I think so. Uh, but it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to gauge. I mean, mm. you ask yourself, suppose Carl Sagan had not existed, had not done the Cosmos TV series and so forth. Would NASA be poor or more poorly funded today than it is, for example? Would the amount of research going into looking for life be less? I, I personally think it would, but it's very hard to prove that. Mm. And, and I think in general you know, what's called outreach, telling the public what's going on, keeping their interest if you can. I, I think personally it's very important because in the end, the public pays for this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I think you only do yourself a lot of good by just explaining it to them because they're interested. Yeah, for yeah sure. A certain fraction of the public is very interested in space. 100%. I think um, I liked what NASA did um, as soon as The Martian was released. NASA would have, this is what, uh, is it Tim Watley? Is it Tim Watley? No, uh, <laughs> Tim Mar Watley. Watley. Mark yeah, Watley. Ma yeah. Mark Watley. This is this yes. is what Mark Watley did. Uh, this is what Mark Watley did on his rover on Mars. This is what we're doing with our rover in the um, in the in the lab. So they kind of piggybacked off the Martians' popularity, and I think that was really cool because so, like movies like Interstellar and um, The Martian, they're very good for getting the excitement back into the space program because after the Apollo program. Wasn't there? Wasn't it the funding taken away, and there was no plans to head to Mars? Well, no. Yeah, that's that's correct. Actually, the Apollo program was assumed by many people, both in the public and in government, for that matter, that uh, the next step would be all right. Now let's build a rocket and go to Mars. Mm. But Mars is a lot farther than the Moon, right? Mars is more than a hundred times farther than the Moon, and uh, it's a lot more challenging to get something there and bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> particularly humans. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, one of the presidents urged NASA, come up with a plan for doing that. And they did. And it was going to cost a lot of money. And they said, well, um, forget that, you know. So they didn't do it. And since then, it's true. I mean, what have we done? We haven't sent people any farther away than into orbit around the Earth. And we haven't sent them any farther away than the distance between, you know, I don't know. I mean, New York and Washington, a couple yeah. of hundred miles, a couple of hundred kilometers. That's as far as we've sent people since the Apollo program. 
And I think that the public has gotten a little bit less interested in space because of that. You know, there certainly has been all the unmanned, uncrewed, if you prefer, but it sounds like a weird word, the uncrewed uh, uh, missions, you know, to Mars and, and Jupiter, Pluto, the New Horizons mission to Pluto generate a lot of interest. I think the public would still be interested in space. Mm, for sure. So, okay, let's talk about um, back to SETI and what we do here. So, how do you actually search for these radio waves? So, that's, that's what you're doing, correct? You're trying to find right. um, communication from these other civilizations out there. And um, so, how do you actually go about doing that? Well, we do exactly what Jodie Foster did in the movie Contact, pretty much. I mean, <laughs> our equipment's quite different. <laughs> we don't sit around and wear headphones uh, because we're monitoring typically several tens of millions of channels at once. That would be a lot of headphones and it would really mess up your, hair, your haircut. <laughs> so, uh, you know, computers are doing the listening and it's all pretty much automated. But we use an array of antennas, a small array, uh, in Northern California, about 500 kilometers north of San Francisco, called the Allen Telescope Array. There are 42 antennas there, each about six meters in diameter. And we use it every day. And we look at nearby star systems that we think might be good bets for having planets that could have life. We're looking for signals. Okay. So in your TED Talk, you've said that basically you haven't heard anything yet in the whole time that SETI's been around? That's right. Does that make you upset at all at any, no. any stage? No, no, no. Uh, again, I mean, considering how little of space we've actually looked at, the total number of star systems we've actually examined over a wide range of frequencies, it's almost nothing. Yeah. So it's very, very early days to say, well, I don't know, Ralph, there's nobody out there. <laughs> that, would be, that would be the wrong conclusion, I think. Definitely. So how, how far can we actually, where are we able to look at? How far out? How many light years? How many galaxies? Well, it's up to you. I mean, you can look as far as you want, obviously. Uh, but if they're very far away, then their transmitters have to be a little more, you know, uh, powerful if you're going to hear them. There's no limit to the distance that you can send radio waves or light waves across. After all, you can... You can see with your eye, you can see the Andromeda galaxy, right? That's two million light years away. That's pretty far. Mm. And your eye has no trouble seeing that. So there's, there's no limit as long as the transmitter and or the receiver are big enough. Okay. So if we were to hear radio signals in the Andromeda galaxy that you just mentioned, so it's so, so far away and we're actually able to pick something up, we go, okay, we've heard something. We know something's making radio waves out there. That means that that's what we're listening to is in the past, right? Works the same as the speed of sound. Is it the same with radio waves? Yeah, yeah, speed of light. Yeah. Speed, of, speed of light. So, so how do we actually, if we were to find these radio waves, how do we actually, can we, can we try and talk to these people? Can we try and study them? Or do we just know that back a billion years ago, there was something going on out there? Well, it's not a billion years, even in the case of the Andromeda galaxy. Mm -hmm. Mostly, we're looking in our own galaxy at star systems that are, you know, no more than a couple of hundred light years away. So, yep. that means the signals are a couple of hundred years old. That's not so bad. I mean, people <laughs> read Shakespeare in school, right? That's a couple of hundred years old, too. They're probably still kicking around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, They've been yeah, around yeah. long enough to I be mean, sending they don't radio waves out into the space. I yeah. suppose they'll probably be hanging around somewhere. They, they, they don't try and start up a conversation with Shakespeare, because that probably wouldn't work. But, you know, it's not that it's uninteresting to pick up something just because it's a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand. Or even in the case of the Andromeda Nebula, a couple of million years old. What do you care? I mean, the, the galaxy is, you know, three times as old as the Earth, so... There could have been societies here billions of years before we got here. Maybe they still have something interesting to tell us. But it isn't really so much that. It's just to show that somebody is out there. That's the first thing you want to pr mm -hmm. prove to yourself. 
And so what if, what if these civilizations don't use radio waves? What if they don't use technology? Then do we have any other way to, to, to find them? Sure. Yeah, there are other things that have been suggested, and they're not crazy either. I mean, you could look for what's called astroengineering, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you have a society that's uh, 100,000 years more advanced than ours, or for that matter, 100 million years more advanced, I mean, who knows what they're doing? Right? They, they, We're not they, talking Death Stars here, are we? Well, I don't, I don't know if you're talking Death Stars. It seems to me that a Death Star is a very big investment for very little gain. But whatever. I mean, it kind of looks neat, you know. But it's, uh, you know, why, why would you go around, you know, just obliterating other, uh, other critters in the galaxy that aren't going to be anywhere near your level anyhow? But, you know, they might be doing things like really big engineering projects, you know, things that are so big that you might be able to define them with telescopes here on Earth. That's a possibility. I mean... That's not crazy. And there have been plenty of stories about such possibilities. Whenever astronomers find something unusual in the skies, very often there's a small group of people who say, it's aliens. Yeah, I remember, um, so I follow um, IFL Science on Facebook. Are you aware of IFL Science? No, I, I, no, I think it, I have moral objections to it. But You do? No, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't follow but tell me about it, then I'll start following it. Um, so for all the listeners, and we swear on this podcast, so please excuse, excuse us, and you're allowed to swear yourself, but it's I fucking love science. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a hub for funny and interesting science content. Um, but IFL Science was going off day after day about the um, giant um, protrusion that was blocking, uh, blocking one of the stars in a distant galaxy. What was going on there? You, I'm sure you know of what, of what I'm talking about. It was basically people saying, look, we found the Death Star that's out there. Well, to begin with, it wasn't in a distant galaxy. I think you're talking about Tabby Star, as Could it's known. Could it be. has another name, KIC 8462852. Although that, <laughs> it's not as neat as Tabby. Uh, Tabby is a, uh, a researcher at Yale University, and, okay. and her group uh, made this star well known. But it's about 1,500 light years away. So, you know, it's like 1% of the distance across the galaxy, mm-hmm. our galaxy. <laughs> uh, but the thing is that the light from it has dipped irregularly and considerably. Uh, 22% dip in the light from such a thing. That isn't a planet getting in front of the star. Something's getting in front of the star and blocking the light. And, you know, uh, there are people who like to think it's an alien megastructure. You know, the Klingons have built something really big, uh, <laughs> Dyson Swarm, something. They built something really big, and it's blocking the light occasionally, and that's what we've seen. Well, that could be. That could be. But uh, history suggests that the safer bet is to say it's something natural, We'll probably learn what it is by finding other examples in the next couple of years. That's my bet to anybody who uh, wants to bet on Tabby Star being the work of aliens. So, so why would it be moving erratically, though? I don't understand. So, well, it's, got, have, it's got a strange you, orbit, or, it might, or is it possible that it's two orbits crossing over? That you, you it's can't just really something in orbit around the star. It doesn't have to be a very strange orbit. But if you have a big dust cloud for some reason, maybe there was a collision of yep. a couple of asteroids, right? It produced a whole bunch of debris. Mm-hmm. And just by chance, occasionally, that debris gets between you and the star. And so it, it blocks some of the light from the star. I mean, you know, there are a lot of possibilities. And we don't know which, if any of the suggested ones, is the truth. But to jump immediately to its aliens, I mean, that's convenient and a lot of fun, and it gets the headlines. Well, that's but what we're here for, sir. But, but it's, yeah, but it's never been the case. I mean, when, when pulsars were first found in Cambridge, England, you know, they were ascribed to aliens, too. When quasars started flickering, people said that was aliens, too. I mean, there, there have been many things. And the, one of the moons of Mars is very small and uh, very lightweight, as if it were hollow. 
and it was suggested in the early days by some reputable scientists that maybe it was an alien space station. Well, it turns out it's a rock. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, you know, this idea that the aliens are involved, it's, it's a bit like saying, you know, the aliens built the pyramids. It could be, but I suspect it was Egyptians. <laughs> um, so, okay, what about the... So, talk about the Fermi paradox. I'm, I'm sure you've, um, you've been questioned innumerable amount of times. Why, why haven't they come to us? Why haven't we had Independence Day happen? Nice, nice aliens. No Independence Day. Let's, let's pretend. Well, I, I kind of liked it once in Independence Day. They come all this way just to ruin everybody's whole day. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> well, look, you know, I, I don't know why they haven't come. And, it, and it's kind of hard to say that they haven't come, right? I mean, maybe they came 100 million years ago. They took pictures of a lot of dinosaurs, maybe stuffed a few, put them in glass bottles, and, you know, left. How would you know? That's right. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. I don't think they've come in, in uh, historical times. And I think the reason for that is they don't know Homo sapiens is here. I mean, we've been broadcasting, you know, radio, TV, and mainly radar into space since the Second World War at power levels that they might be able to pick up. Uh, that isn't very long. So, you know, the signals that would tell them that there's something interesting on Earth in terms of intelligence uh, probably haven't reached them yet. So I don't know why they'd be here, you know, hauling people out of their bedrooms in Cooper PD, you know, for unauthorized <laughs> breeding experiments when they don't even know we're here, but, you know. Right. So how advanced does a civilization have to be to, to, visit, to visit other, you know, other galaxies and other um, star systems to try and find or visit alien life? Listen, you have to be pretty advanced even to visit the next star over, mm -hmm. let alone other galaxies. We're not even talking about other galaxies here. I mean, it's, it's only four and a half light years to the nearest other star beside the sun. Our fastest rocket takes 75,000 years to get there. That's a one-way trip. <laughs> okay, you say, all right, well, the aliens have faster rockets. Well, they probably do, but, you know, the amount of energy required for them to have a rocket that could get from one star system to another in, say, 10 years, which would still be a boring <laughs> ride, right? That amount of energy is the amount of energy that, you know, the United States will burn up in a couple of centuries. That's, that's a lot of energy. It doesn't matter what kind of engines you have. You have to get that energy. And so it's hard. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, you know, TV makes it look easy. You just call up somebody in the engine room and tell them to put the pedal to the metal. <laughs> but, but in reality, the physics makes it very hard to travel between the stars. So do you think, that'll, um, do you think in the future that'll change? I mean, obviously, computing it goes gangbusters, and we, can, we have so much stronger computers year after year after year after year. We're sitting here in Silicon Valley. You've probably um, seen it all. In right in front of you happening. Um, but as far as rocketry and as far as science and physics have actually, w where do you see it in 50 years? Are we going to be able to uh, travel three times, five times, ten times as fast as we can travel now? What are we working on to be able to do this? Or is it just so far removed from what we understand physically possible? People certainly think about it. And there, you know, if you're willing to send something small, I'm not talking about people now, something small, something the size of a you know, a big coin, for example, to another star, then there are suggested technologies that might be able to do that within, you know, a decade or so, right. maybe two decades. Uh, but, you know, I don't know how much you learn by sending a, a whole bunch of silver dollars or something, <laughs> you know, to the nearby star. Even so, it would take 20, 30, 40 years to get there. Right. And it's very difficult to get anything back because to get anything back, you need a transmitter on, on this thing with an antenna that's big enough that you can pick the signal up back here. It's, it's hard even to do that. To send people to the stars, I won't say never. It doesn't violate physics to do it. It's just really, really hard. Uh, it, you know, it's like made, making a motorized skateboard that's suitable for uh, traversing uh, 
Siberia. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you could do it, but, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy. Yeah, right. Okay, so what about, um, what about so let's talk about uh, where we're actually, uh, sorry, why it's important to find alien life. Um, so if we were to find microbial life, I don't think that people would kind of get up and about about it as much as they would find as they would if we found um, intelligent life. But what do you think the cultural kind of um, what do you think the cultural impact would be if we were to find a microbial life or b um, intelligent life? Well, I think we've already done that experiment in some ways because in 1996, the big science news story of that year was the claim that there were dead Martian microbes in a meteorite that was picked up in us uh, in Antarctica. Actually, that was a big story. That was the number one story for four days. Uh, huge type fonts and so forth in the New York Times and so forth. And, you know, announcements by Clinton and uh, NASA and so forth and so on. Turns out that it probably wasn't Martian microbes, but what was the reaction to that? Well, people were just interested. They wanted to know more. That was the reaction. People mm -hmm. didn't go nuts about it. All right, so it, I, I think if we were to find, you know, microbes on Mars or Europa or any of these other places, people would be just very interested. And of course, it would have benefits for science too. So, you know, I, I think that's fairly predictable. If you were to find uh, ET, find a signal from ET, well, that would be different because now it's intelligent life, but I don't think that the populace would go crazy either. 30% of the people of uh, the United States, and for that matter, every other first world country, uh, believe that the aliens are here. Right. That's, occasionally, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, occasionally <laughs> crash landing in, you know, Roswell or whatever. <laughs> right, at 30%. 30 that's, that's a big percentage. Yeah, yeah, one out of three. And uh, they still go to work in the morning, right? So if they were to pick up uh, their newspapers, if any of them still get newspapers, and then read that, well, we'd found a signal, I don't think that they would be terribly shocked by that. I think, you know, a third of them would say, well, what's the big deal? They're they're, they're, already, they're, they're already, already here. here. <laughs> they're already here. I don't think they're here, but they, but they do think they're here. So, you know, they say, look, you know, that's not even news to me. It's not even very interesting. This signal's coming from 500 light years away. I've got aliens, you know, in the, buzzing my house at night. So uh, this, this idea that the public would become unstable and start, uh, you know, going nuts uh, is, you know, I think nuts itself. Right. So I was kind of thinking the other way around. I was thinking, um, I think that, Something that would bring everybody on Earth much closer together would be A, getting hit by an asteroid and having to band together, right, we have to blow up this asteroid. It's putting pressure on the actual existence of you know, humans on this planet or intelligent life and then making it kind of we are humans, we are one, there's our you know, brothers in another solar system rather than have all these borders and nations and religions and little sects that we chop ourselves up into and... Do you think that it would be a positive impact rather than an, a, even a negative impact like that? Well, Bill, you're kind of young, and so you're probably still idealistic. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't think any of that would happen, actually. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's nice to think to, uh, everybody to come together. You know. Right, me? All right, I'll tell you what, uh, Vladimir, we're going get to get along now because, after all, there are aliens out there. I think they'll be fighting over the data. Uh, you know, and, and, and asteroid impacts, if you learn that an asteroid is going to hit the Earth, there is this possibility that you um, of course you would get the orbit so accurately that you can say well if we don't do anything it's going to hit new delhi but if we send up uh, you know some sort of interceptor and can nudge it a little bit then instead of hitting new delhi it'll hit uh, you know new york 
<laughs> right. So I'm sure that will lead to, you know, really fine feelings between <laughs> India and the United States deciding which, which city is going to buy it. I mean, really, it's uh, the idea that we would learn something like this and suddenly everybody will sing Kumbaya and get along. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> interesting, but I'm not sure it's ter terribly accurate. I, it's... It, oh, I mean, look, man, I'm really Chuck, disappointed now. <laughs> Chucky e. Darwin, right? We're totally, we're totally screwed then. Seth, no, I I, it's just a, look, when Charles Darwin publishes The Origin of Species, and we find out, hey, we're all descended from other animals. You know, we all have a common ancestor. Did everybody say, all right, uh, we're getting rid of the weaponry. We're all, we're all just mm. going to, you know, True. play chess. I, this is not, not exactly what happened. True. So talking about, um, talking about just briefly on... Um, on this asteroidal impact kind of scenario, um, how important is it? You, you do some work here. Um, you do some work here that focuses on near-Earth objects. Is that what they're called? Near-Earth yes. near objects? Okay, so um, how important is it to really get cracking on that research and, and have that research funded? Because was it Chelyabinsk, uh, Chelyabinsk in Russia? Mm -hmm. So the Chelyabinsk Russia um, meteor that flew through our, um, came into our... Um, Atmosphere. Came into our atmosphere. We didn't even see that coming. Nope. So how much work is there getting done trying to make sure or trying to safeguard this planet from just getting pummeled by asteroids? Well, it depends on what you consider pummeling <laughs> and more specifically what you consider acceptable pummeling, right? Because any asteroid that's more than about two kilometers in size is really serious. Yep. When, when you get about, you know, 10 kilometers in size, it's like the one that did in the dinos. Yep. So that's a, kind of an extinction level event. Now, obviously, you don't want that to happen. Of course, that doesn't happen very often. Maybe every 50 or 100 million years, you get one. But it's been 60-some million years since the last big one, so maybe you ought to worry about it. Uh, and, and, and actually, we found something like 90% of all the big ones. So those are the first ones you look for. They're also the easiest ones to find. Mm -hmm. and, and so far, we haven't found any that look like they're going to hit us in the foreseeable future. And then you get down to the smaller ones, right, like Chelyabinsk. The, the, you know, Chelyabinsk was about the size of a crummy hotel, right? And uh, it, if it had come in at a different angle, it could have killed a lot of people in the town of Chelyabinsk, actually. And it's small enough, I mean, the size of a hotel. That you don't see so very easily, right? That's harder to find. And there are many, many more small ones than big ones. So, yeah, how much money are you willing to spend to find all those guys? Uh, so far in the United States, the amount of money that's allocated to this is something like $10 million a year. And, you know, 10 years ago, it was zero dollars a year. So at least there's some interest in finding these things. And we're slowly, you know, accumulating uh, data on these things. But knowing that one's going to hit you, that might motivate you to do something about it. You should also spend some money thinking about, well, what are the possibilities? What could you do about it? Mm. So do you think the funding is, so do, you think, do you think that's an uh, acceptable level of funding or do you think that's? It's like buying insurance, you know. How much, how much insurance do you want to buy? You make a trade-off between the premium price and mm. and the uh, chances that you think you're going to get done in. So we've got the uh, so we're basically buying the very low budget third not, party fire and theft basically <laughs> yeah. not the comprehensive just yet. Yeah, third third party fire and theft insurance of planet earth you think. Uh yeah, at least yes, I, I agree with that. And it, but at least it's better than what we were buying before. Better than nothing. <laughs> Definitely. So, um you seem like a really you seem like a a, a realist when it comes to trying to find et seth well i hope so well uh, obviously it's it's what you do you, you're using science rather than um speculation but how much um 
how much you're you're in the media a lot. How many questions do you get about Roswell, New Mexico, about um, UFO sightings throughout the United States? Why do why do one in third uh, one in three people around the world think that aliens are here? Like, why why is that? Well, I think part of it is that they see them on television every night. So mm-hmm. obviously, if it's on TV, it must be true. Uh, and there've been plenty of movies too. I mean, it's kind of a comforting thought that you know the universe is clearly much bigger than any previous generation realized. Right? Even my grandparents, you know, they wouldn't have known about Hubble's result, galaxies, and so forth. You know, the universe has grown trillions of times mm-hmm. just in the past two generations, right? So, uh, and and that could make you feel a little bit lonely. It's kind of comforting to think, well, uh, fortunately, we're not the only only people or the only thinking things around. There's that. Uh, also, I think that people like the idea that there are superior beings because, you know, if the aliens come here, they have to be more advanced than we are. Superior beings that might, uh, you know, help you out, even if it's only by destroying Los Angeles, which after <laughs> all, from the point of view of somebody here in Northern California, is maybe not all that bad. But, you know, uh, to help you out. I mean, because as a kid, you really appreciate having some superior beings that might help you out, known as parents. Okay. <laughs> so in a sense, I think that there's that kind of psychology about it. Um, because otherwise, it's, it is somewhat lonely. Uh, but I think it's mostly the fact that we now realize how big space is, how many planets are out there. These are all things that we've learned over the course of the last century. And, uh, you know, there's nothing, the best we can tell, all that special about the Earth. And consequently, it seems eminently reasonable there are other beings out there. Well, the public would like that. And if they, you know, haul you out of your bedroom for these unauthorized breeding experiments, <laughs> well, at least you get a social life. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, so what about Roswell, New Mexico? Is there, any, is there any truth to anything that goes on there? What are, you, are, you a, are you a believer? Well, I've been to Roswell. I get, look, I get phone calls every day from people who've seen things. <laughs> yeah. Every day, every day. And, you know, these are not people who are nuts or anything like that. They've just seen something. They want to know what it is. So I, I deal with this matter a lot, the UFO phenomenon. I've never gotten any evidence. They'll send me videos and photos. I've never seen anything where I thought, man, you know, that's clearly extraterrestrial. I, I think you would know. I mean, it's, you know, you could have asked the aboriginals of uh, Australia, you know, in, in 1800, <laughs> do you think you're being visited by British ships? <laughs> you know, the evidence was pretty good, actually, because, mm-hmm. hey, they're, they're just down the river a bit. There they are, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't controversial. And I think that if we were being visited, that would also not be controversial. I think that the evidence would be very good. And it's not very good. But, you know, as far as what happened in Roswell, there are perfectly good explanations for what happened in Roswell in 1947 that don't involve aliens. But if you don't want to hear about those. No, of course you don't. <laughs> Nor does the Chamber of Commerce of Roswell, right? It's the best thing that ever, it's the best thing that ever happened to Roswell, New Mexico, was this, uh, this, this incident. Because otherwise, how many tourists would ever go to Roswell? Mm, that's right. So, I um, was reading a little bit of some of your recent articles that you'd, um, you'd been interviewed in some of your recent, recent speeches, and um, there was a quote that you said, uh, something along the lines of, you predict that we'll see, it might have been a couple of years ago, you'll, you'll, you predict that we'll see or uh, we'll, we'll find alien life or we'll find uh, ET basically in the next 25 years, otherwise you'll buy us all a cup of coffee. Right, that's correct. <laughs> you get a flat white if we don't find the aliens. I do, I'd take cappuccino, thanks. So. Oh, all right. <laughs> You don't, um, you don't get a flat white. <laughs> so, why, um, why 25 years? Why do you think we're so close to being able to find... Well, that's just my opinion. I, I want to stress that. 
And there are plenty of people probably even in this building who would not even buy you that, that cup of coffee. <laughs> but uh, the reason is, if you just look at the improvement in technology for listening, mm -hmm. uh, we, we kind of know how fast that technology is moving. It's tied very closely to developments here in the Silicon Valley. And so you know, you know how, how good the equipment's going to be 10 years down the road, if you can afford to buy it. And that means that within 25 years, we'll have been able to look at maybe a million star systems, a thousand times as many as we've looked at now. Wow. And so that's why I think, okay, if you've looked at a million star systems, it just seems not unreasonable to me that you may trip across a signal. So that's why I wager a cup of coffee on that. Mm. So if we, do, if we do see a radio signal in 20 years' time, then what is the next step? I kind of touched on it earlier, but what do we what do we do with that information? We obviously release it to the public. The public get a little bit excited. We, what, what, what do we do next? Yeah, I have to go buy a lot of coffee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, no, actually, I don't have to buy a lot of coffee. That's right. They have to buy me one. Or maybe, maybe they haven't signed on for that. But yeah, no, what do you do next? Well, uh, look, every telescope in the world of any sort will be aimed at the spot on the sky where the signal's coming from. You would try and learn as much as you could, of course. You would study the heck out of, you know, wherever that signal's coming from. And the signal itself, I, I, I'm sure that what you'd really want to do is just put it on the Internet and let everybody look at it and see what people can come up with. People can be very clever about these things. Um, the, the immediate uh, question about, well, should we reply? You know, they might be hundreds of light years away. Most likely they would be. And... Uh, so there's no real hurry to, <laughs> to answer and say, hey, you know, uh, we're the Earthlings and we've got a whole bunch of used cars we'd like to sell you <laughs> or something like that. I mean, but there will be people who will think, hey, you know, let's, let's try talking to them, you know. Uh, and, and there'll be other people who say, no, 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 let's not let them know we're here. Or, you know, they're, they're worried about the danger. So I'm, I'm sure that you'd have that discussion. But again, given the amount of time it takes for signals across the distance between where they are and you are, this is a bit like flying going down to the beach and flying, finding a, a message in a bottle and everybody jumping up and down, let's, well, I'm going to go buy some bottles, so let's reply right away. You know, maybe there's not that much hurry. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So when, so the solar system, when you're putting out radio waves to try and hear things or eavesdrop on extraterrestrial information, is there, has there ever been any noise that you've ever come across that's ever been like, oh, maybe, or have you been We used to get call? a lot of false alarms. Uh, yeah. Back what? in the days before, we could automatically check out signals very quickly. Since we've had the technology to do that, the false alarms go away. So, so I think all those false alarms were just terrestrial interference. There are a lot of satellites orbiting the Earth that make plenty of radio noise that looks like just the sort of thing we're looking for. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to sort all that out. So what would determine an extraterrestrial information, like a radio wave? What, had, well, you'd get be... excited about a signal if it were really coming from the sky and moving across the sky the way the stars do, right? Yep. The stars rotate around roughly once every day because of the rotation of the Earth, right? And if you saw a signal, then it was also parading across the sky just the way the stars do. You'd say, well, that's not a telecommunications satellite. We're on uh, here. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So what, how much could we find out realistically if, um, if we found a radio wave? How much could we find out about that planet? Can we find out the shape of that planet, the size of that planet? Um, the shape's probably going to be round, I suppose, but... But um, what, like we can find out the, um, the elements that's in the atmosphere of that planet? Not so much from a radio wave unless they're telling it to you in very simple picture 
right. format or something <laughs> like that. You know, maybe they have a cubicle planet, actually. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, from the radio signal, all you're going to learn about is whatever they've encoded in that signal in terms of information. And that may be something you can't either decipher. receive or ever decipher. I mean, who's, who's to say? But you would know very quickly how far away they are, and then you would put big telescopes to work looking for planets in that direction, and then you might learn something about their, you know, the astronomical aspects of their home turf. That you might learn. But in terms of, you know, what they look like or what their society is like or what their music is like or anything like that, unless <laughs> they put that in the, in the signal in a way that you could ever figure out, you may not know that. Right. So basically, if we do strike it lucky then we could just really be looking at a bunch of code on a page. It, it, yeah, code. I mean, you just may be looking at a lot of numbers. Yeah. yeah. Well, do, you, do you think they would be like us? Like, obviously, they would be more intelligent than that, but obviously, you've thought about it throughout the years that you've been here, what they would be like? Well, in the movies, they're, they're a little different from us because they don't have much hair. <laughs> and they, big <laughs> they're mostly gray. They have big eyeballs with no <laughs> eyelids, right? No clothes, no names. Well, not in Avatar. <laughs> Avatar, oh, they're yeah. seven foot three, <laughs> yeah. all super ripped, nice shade of blue. <laughs> yeah, actually, in Avatar, that's right. They were improved versions of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's usually the case with the aliens. They, they tend to be improved versions of humans. But if you think about it, you know, these aliens have to be advanced enough to have invented radio. Otherwise, we don't hear from them. And as soon as you invent radio, you're within 50 years of inventing computers. And as soon as you've invented computers, you're probably only 100 years from inventing synthetic intelligence. So, Mike, so add all that stuff together. That means you invent radio, and within a couple hundred years, you've invented your successors. So my, my usual statement here is that if we hear something come from space, it's not from living aliens at all. It's machines. Uh, it's machinery. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. So how come if we've had, as humans, if we've had 195,000 um, 195, years of existence and a brain the same size, how come we haven't? Or do you think we have hit um, periods where we may have reached a really um, advanced civilization and then say we got hit by an asteroid? Um, how many times do you think, because if we've had the ability to do it for so long, why has it taken this long to get to the point where the last 50 years we've been able to send radio waves and people could actually find us? Well, it's got to happen at some time, right? I mean, or, or not. But, you know, you have to invent science and then technology and so forth and so on. You got to do all that. And then at some point you get to the point where, hey, we've got radio. And you look around and say, huh, how amazing. It just happened now. Well, I mean, it had to happen sometime, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I think that the answer to your question is why did Homo sapiens sit around for 200,000 years yeah. and not do it's a heck of slack. a lot? <laughs> That's right. They hadn't invented, you know, reality television until the last 20 years. So, what, you know, why did it take so long? I, that's that's a question not for me. That's a question for the anthropologist. But when you, when they look at it, they they point out that through most of that period, you know, you had the ice ages and so forth. Uh, the Earth was quite cold. Existence was pretty tough. Mm -hmm. So it was very hard to do things like invent agriculture because you know, agriculture is pretty new. That's ten, fifteen thousand yeah. years old. But as soon as you have agriculture, then you can have cities. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you have cities, maybe you have enough surplus of wealth that you can have a few people just sitting around worrying about things like geometry, <laughs> right? Or, you know, science, fundamentally. Science, yeah. science is a real luxury. And so you have to have a species that's gotten to the point where it not only has the brain power for science, but has enough wealth 
for science. Mm. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that would be, I suspect, the anthropologist's answer to that question. And you could certainly turn around and say, wow, it only took 200,000 years. Look at the dinosaurs. They were around for 150 million years. Mm. And the dinosaurs' contribution to science is fairly limited. <laughs> so that's interesting because we've had life on this planet for, for so long, obviously, past, um, well past the dinosaurs. And we've only had this small, infinitely small percentile of time where we've actually you know, probably sent radio waves out there. Do you think that we're forever chasing our tails because, because most of the planets in the solar system, is, there a, is, is it fair to say that there's a constant bombardment of, of asteroids on other planets in other solar systems or do we just not really know that? I mean, what I'm trying to say is if we get these, um, these civilizations that are ready to talk to us or, or they're actually just sending out radio waves that we can hear, how often are they just getting wiped out? Well, you don't know that. Mm. I mean, if they all get wiped out pretty quickly, then uh, you're not going to hear from anybody. And you could say, well, the data are consistent with that, right? We haven't heard from anybody, so maybe they're all getting wiped out. <laughs> I, I think that that's a very sunny uh, take on the whole problem, <laughs> but I don't believe it. Because at the point where you can build radio transmitters, you're within a couple of hundred years of you know, developing technology to find all the asteroids and divert them if you have to do that. So... Whereas the, uh, you know, the dinosaurs didn't spend a lot of money on trying to map all the asteroids. <laughs> Maybe they should have, but they, didn't, you know, they just weren't clever enough to, to do that. Uh, we are, and I think that the aliens, to begin with, will have asteroids because asteroids are just leftover pieces from the building of the solar system, right? The creation of the planets. It's just leftover stuff. And, and they're going to have that too. And they're going to have to worry about it too. But you know, assuming that they're at the point where they could get in touch with us, they probably had a, an asteroid protection program in place for a long, a long time. I think they, that's one problem with the cosmos that they can solve. Mm -hmm. So in the future for, um, for SETI, for, um, for yourself, where do, you, where do you see 50 years from now, 100 years from now? Are we going to be in touch with aliens? Are we going to be um, inter, interplanetary species? Where do you see the future for... Um, mankind and our search to try and find other people out there? Well, I don't know. It's always difficult to predict the future, as they say. And, uh, you know, almost all predictions are wrong. So, so, so mine will be wrong, too. But, I mean, the idea that we'll be a spacefaring society, you know, our species will go out into space like Luke Skywalker and deal with the bad guys and all that sort of thing. You know, uh, I, I, I'm not so sure that that's our future. And their future might be a little bit different. To begin with, by the end of the century, we're going to have machines that are at least as clever as humans in terms of their brain power. I don't know what that means for us. Whatever that means, it's going to probably be more significant even than finding a signal from another society. Hugely because that's, yeah, that's an immediate issue you have to deal with. And I didn't say that the machines are going to you know, just kill us all. They, they might it's have no... <laughs> they, they'll probably just ignore us all. But the facts are that... that we're just we're not the smartest kids on the block mm. right and i and i think that that is profoundly uh, yeah a disturbing thought but one that seems to be coming down the pike so you know that that's going to happen as far as whether we'll ever be the sort of spacefaring society that you see in the movies that depends on whether you can ever conquer the difficult distance problem mm. uh, the universe is set up so that things are very far from one another and as I've said earlier, the amount of energy required to go from one place to another before you're dead uh, is so enormous that, you know, it really requires the kinds of 
technology, physics, really, that we don't have at the moment. So, you know, who's to say that we won't ever do it? I wouldn't say that. But I think that much sooner than any of that happening, we will see developments in artificial intelligence, which may make the whole problem moot. Because as soon as you have a thinking machine, it doesn't care that it takes 100,000 years to get to another, another world. Mm-hmm. And the machines live forever, if you will, in some sense. And if you live forever, it doesn't matter how long the trip is. Well, in terms of, um, is it Moore's Law, the, um, the rate of the computer, computer, um, the computer getting more powerful and more powerful as, uh, as the years go by? Once we, get to, um, once we get to artificial intelligence that's smarter than us, then everything just extrapolates, right? Then doesn't it become a lot easier for us to send signals, a lot easier for, uh, easier for us to find things out there because we, like you said, we're not the smartest people in the room. We just leave it to the computers. Is that the future of SETI, do you think? Well, here's where you put in an edit point. <laughs> well, indeed. I mean, what you can say about the technology and Moore's Law is that the equipment that you have for scanning the skies, for looking, is getting better all the time. I mean, think of classical exploration, right? The 1770s, Captain Cook sails into the South Pacific and, mm-hmm. you know, f- finds Tasmania and, you know, the, the, the east coast of Australia. All right, but what if his ship was doubling in speed every two years? That's what's happening with computers. That's insane. Right? Then, uh, you know, Cook would have found everything in the Pacific very quickly. Yeah. Right? So th- I, I think that that's where where we're going in terms of SETI. I mean, the technology means that SETI will keep getting faster and faster. And uh, that's, that's only good news because if we keep doing SETI at the speed we're doing it now, it'll take, you know, thousands of years before you have much chance of finding anything. This way, it might be only a few tens of years. So, you know, that's the good news of Moore's Law. Mm-hmm. So you seem like you have a bit of a stance on this whole artificial intelligence thing. Are you of the opinion of Stephen Hawking that it could be the end of humanity, the the biggest problem that we have in our hands is the problem that we're creating or are you more Neil deGrasse Tyson who thinks it's just going to be it's going to be great computers are going to be smarter than us we'll just turn them off if they get out of hand well you can you can say you're going to just turn them off and 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 indeed the first ones you build you could turn them off and you can also build them to be friendly to your neighbors and stuff like that uh the thing is by the time you get to the third generation of course the computers are designing their own successors yeah that's right and so their priorities are not your priorities any more than our priorities are the priorities of the forest apes that were our predecessors, mm-hmm. right? We don't still do things with them in mind. I mean, we don't go out and kill all the forest apes, although not deliberately anyhow. Mm-hmm. We, we do destroy their habitat. I mean, it, you know, it isn't, it isn't malevolent, but, you know, it still results in a lot fewer forest apes. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, by analogy, you could say that the, the thinking machines probably are just, oh, we're going to kill all those humans. What do you think about it, Zork? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just... What do you think about it, Zork? Yeah, yeah but they speak a lot faster than we do. Uh, so the, the, so, so maybe, maybe they're not interested in killing us, but whatever they do at some point becomes detached from us. They don't have to stay on this planet. They can just get up and leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of them, or some of them, or one of them, will because what's there on this planet other than some good rock and roll to keep them here. I mean, they, they'll go where there's more energy or more material resources for their uh, gusto-grabbing lifestyles. So, you know, is it the greatest threat that we've confronted? I don't think uh, Hawking's totally off base on that. I really don't. I think, I think he's foreseen that this is something different because in 200,000 years, we've not had really to contend with anything that was clearly intellectually superior to us, right? Mm-hmm. You know, come across the Neanderthals in Europe and, you know, you take them out eventually. 
they were not intellectually superior. But if you now have something that is, and, and every two years is twice <laughs> as mm. smart as it was previously, uh, that's a different ballgame. Yeah. So basically, we're creating, we're creating gods that we don't know whether they're going to want to yeah, I mean, play by our rules. The artificial intelligence guys will say, oh, well, we'll just build in a big, you know, there'll be a big knife switch on the side of these things. If they're getting out of control, you just turn off the power. Mm. Well, these things are smart enough to uh, understand what that switch is about. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, the, I get right into the artificial intelligence um, quandrum. So, where, where do you think, um, where do you think, do you think this is all going to happen in 50 years, 100 years? I picture, uh, what I can, what I think that your picture of the, the future is it's actually bionic robots walking around. Like, it, can't we just, wouldn't you think we might be able to just con- contain them in a box? Yeah. Bring them out when we want to. Yeah, you can contain them in a box until they design, you know, wheels for themselves or whatever. <laughs> what are they going to do? I mean, yeah, yeah. In, in the beginning, it's not a problem. I mean, it isn't that the robots are going to, you know, or the thinking machines are going to take over everything in the next 20 years or, or 40 years or, or even 60 years. But when you look down the pike a little bit beyond that, then it, it becomes a little cloudy what's actually going to happen. You can, you can confine them to a box. You can teach them to behave. All of that, as I say, goes out the window when they start designing their successors. Mm. As long as you're in charge, you can always pull the plug. But at some point, they're going to be possibly able to stop you from pulling the plug. Mm. And you're, you're not running the show anymore. It's like, you know, who, who runs your household? Is it your dog or is it you? Mm. At some point, it isn't the dog anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So, um, all right. So, um, thanks for... Uh, Thanks for coming on the show, Seth. We're going we're gonna to finish off with um, six from six, which is uh, three questions from me and three questions from Jack. Um, so, Jack, do you want to lead us off? No worries. Uh, sorry, I'll just get them up my phone. Why, <laughs> right, Jack, memory. you haven't committed these to memory. <laughs> cool. So, uh, first question is just because I want to know, not <laughs> on any scientific basis. Uh, what type of music do you listen to? What type? What well, gets you, I have what to tell you, you I, it, my favorite is, <laughs> you know, there's an Australian radio program that I was on years ago that... Triple played, J? Yes. Yes. Nice. Yes. <laughs> uh, Dr. Uh, Carl? Were you on there with Dr. Carl? No, it was a woman presenter, actually. Okay. I can't, can't remember her name. But in any case, uh, classical is what I buy for myself. I listen to almost every musical genre. There's, there are very few genres that I don't like. There are a couple, but, you know... I'm a big fan of almost all music. You appreciate of the of the music? Cool, yeah, that's yeah. good. But classical is what I'll actually pay money for. Yeah, not much money, mind you. But so. <laughs> uh, cool. So, second question: as as a youngster, so when you were a little boy, um, what were your like your hobbies? Did you play sport? What were your recreations? Were you kind of an arty kid or a sciencey kid? Or yeah, well, I had a lot of hobbies. I still have a lot of hobbies because whatever hobbies you develop between the ages of eight and eleven, I think, are the ones that you keep forever. Yeah. And uh, so you know, some of them were kind of Useless but interesting, like stamp collecting. Well, and I still do that, actually. Bill did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My nan set me up with stamp collection. Yeah. Thanks, Nan. See, there you go. Thanks, Nan. Uh, but, you know, I like to build things, so I have some power tools in the garage. I just like building s- stupid stuff. Yep. Uh, also, electronics, amateur radio, uh, and, you know, almost anything mechanical. I was always interested in the railroad, so I've even worked for the railroads on occasion. Photography. Probably my biggest hobby. I still do a lot of photography. Yep. In fact, most of the photos hanging on the walls around here were photos I've made because, uh, you know, the boss has co-opted my hobbies, turned them into part of my job description. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> used to make movies. From the age of 11, I've made movies. 
So I, I like doing that. I mean, you know, just very simple things. Yeah. Cool. And last question, finally. So uh, if you didn't take the path that you took to get to where you are now at SETI, where do you think you would be? Would you be a fireman? Would you be, you know, an astronaut or anything? Yeah. Well, as I say, with all those hobbies, you see, I had a lot of interest. And that means I actually had a lot of careers. Yeah. Uh, astronomy is the, the longest lasting of them all. And I used to study galaxies, not aliens. But uh, I've also worked for the railroads in the United States. And I uh, also, uh, in Europe, I had a computer animation company I started. We did that. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think if I'd made a different exit from the freeway when I was younger, I might, might still be working for the railroads or I might be doing something in computer graphics or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for answering. <laughs> And my three questions, Seth. So, are you a well-traveled man? I always ask my guests, so I know the answer is probably going to be yes, but are you a well-traveled man? Well, I, you know, it depends on, you know, whom you ask. If you ask me, I would say no, but if you ask anybody who knows me, they would say yes, because I travel a lot more than your average bear. So, mm-hmm. I've, I've been to a, you know, I've, I've been to Penrith, for example. <laughs> Penrith? <laughs> yes. I like it. All right, so... What's your favorite travel destination? It can be, uh, can be Penrith, can be, uh, can be somewhere in Europe. You spend some time in Europe. It um, can be small town, big city, can be a continent if you like. I'm interested in history, so I like going places where there's been some history. One of the most interesting places I've gone to, and gone a couple of times actually, is Egypt. You know, that's yep. in Egypt. But I always enjoy going to Italy because, gosh darn it, you know, that's, that's Western civilization right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I, I, you know, there are very few places that are totally dull, but I, I kind of like, actually, you know, a place I'd like to visit is Japan. Oh, I went to Japan last year. Yeah. Well, I've been to Japan and uh, several times. The thing that fascinates me about it is it's a very, very modern society, right? Mm. I mean, the technology is far beyond what we have here in California, although the Californians are probably unaware of that. <laughs> uh, you know, and everything is clean, neat, and, you know, yeah. safe and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's just... And yet you have something that looks extremely, you know, the extreme of Western, if you will, sophistication in terms of technology and stuff like that. And yet it has a culture that's completely different from the West. Mm-hmm. And so that, the, the juxtaposition of those two make for a very interesting place to visit from my point of view. So I like Japan. But, you know, they're, they're, I've been to Africa. I've been most places, but I haven't been to Antarctica. And heck, I read all those books about Scott. And, you know, uh, Amundsen, and for that matter, Mawson from mm-hmm. Australia and so forth. And I've never been to Antarctica. I'd like to see that. Well, I think you just answered my next question because my next question was, where's your dream destination? So it can, again, be little, big, can be a continent, can be Antarctica. The number one place that you haven't been, you haven't ticked off your bucket list, where would that be? Ah, uh. Andamuka. No, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. What, what would be the... The place I've never been. I think it probably is Antarctica because, you know, there there are many places I haven't visited. Obviously, most places I haven't visited. I haven't been to many places, for example, in the subcontinent. You know, mm-hmm. I've only been to India once, and it's a very interesting place. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been to too many places in the Middle East. That would be interesting as well, other than Egypt. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of places to go. But, you know, I can't honestly complain because I have traveled many, many, many times more than anybody would have been able to do even 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, so can I just extend on that? Yeah. What would be your uh, dream destination within our solar system, if you could have well, Within our solar system? <laughs> yeah, I think it has to be Mars. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me yeah. too, because, I think. Yeah, <laughs> because it, it isn't so 
extreme that you know you would just be completely encumbered by whatever protection it would take to keep you alive there. Uh, with marsh, you might be able to actually walk around. I mean, think about the the, the Mariner Valley, the Valles Marineris on Mars. You know, it's 200 times bigger than the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is an <laughs> interesting insane. place to visit, but this thing would be, you know, so much bigger. I think that would be spectacular. Amazing, yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think about, this isn't my third question, we've gone off, we've gone on a little tangent here, but what do you think about Elon Musk's plans and, and uh, Mars One's plans? What do you think about these plans to set up colonies on Mars? Well, I mean, all for it? yeah, sure, I'm all for it. But, you know, Mars One, uh, Basel Onstorp there mm-hmm. outside of Amsterdam, uh, he's got a bunch of people that he wants to send to Mars, but he's sending them on a one-way ticket, which is mm. not so crazy. Uh, people who were sent to... Uh, we interviewed a, a woman, actually, Diane McGrath, uh, one of our first podcasts. We interviewed her about her plan. She's a Mars One candidate in the, last, yeah. in the final 100. It was a really interesting interview to hear what's going through her mind. Leaving, yeah, leaving well, I, well I did the same thing. I talked to a young woman who's a physics student at Duke University, and she's mm-hmm. among the 100 as well. I asked her what her parents thought of the idea. She said they were down with it, so yeah. whatever. I, you know, and, and after all, a one-way ticket is not, you know, nuts. I mean, the people who were <laughs> sent to Australia by the British in the beginning were on a one-way ticket. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so if you, but, but it's a little harder to live off the land on Mars than it is, you know, in eastern Australia. So I think that, um, you know, it's, it's a little idealistic. I mean, we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we will colonize Mars. All that we can say is that Mars, even on a good day, is a much harsher environment than any place on Earth. Any place on Earth. Mm. So you have to keep that in mind. It's not trivial. Yeah. Okay. So uh, back to my final question. If you are on a desert island and you have three things to keep you sane, you've got your necessities. You've got you've got um, toothbrush and water, and you've got iPhone, Pokemon Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Navigation beacons to seek help. <laughs> <laughs> you've got uh, you've got all that. What do you need to keep yourself sane while you're over there? I guess a volleyball. No, volleyball. Uh, no, <laughs> you didn't see that movie. Tom, all right. Tom Hanks. <laughs> well, sir. <laughs> yes, you did see that movie. Well, uh, I, you know, obviously, I, I guess a lot of books, whether in electronic form or, or just printed. You can out. have a Kindle if you like. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would like to read a lot of books, but uh, history. Uh, probably, I'd read, start reading books on navigation and seafaring stuff, but. Beyond that, I think just a stack of scrap paper and a, and a, and a supply of pens. Okay. I would do a lot of writing. Cool. Right. That's all you want? Uh, well, I mean, heck, you know, aside from companionship, that would be You got good. a Kindle, you got someone to hang out with, and you got some pen and paper. Yeah. That, that, that might be enough, as long as you say that there's, you know, steak for dinner every night. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't say there was steak. Didn't say it was a five-star a desert island. Yeah. Well, I mean, just a meat pie or something. I mean, <laughs> I didn't say the Desert Island was Australia either. Yeah. <laughs> 420. Um, yeah. All right. Cool. Well, Seth, where can, um, where can they find more about, uh, where can the listeners find more about SETI and what you do here? Well, uh, the best thing to do is just go to SETI.org, SETI.org, and you can find something uh, there about uh, the Institute. You can find our radio show there. You can find all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. And yourself, is there anything else you want to plug? Where can they find yourself, Seth? Your, your, your podcast, you've got a podcast slash radio show. You want to? Give that a It's called mission. Big Picture Science. Just type that into your browser. Mm-hmm. Big Picture Science. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Alrighty. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, it's Seth. my pleasure. <laughs> my pleasure, guys. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening, guys. A cool interview with Seth Shostak. Um, what a man. What an interesting life and what an interesting field to be uh, spending his day-to-day in. 
So fingers crossed that uh, Seth ends up buying us all a cup of coffee and we find some uh, alien life in the next 25 years. Anyway, if you like the show, make sure you subscribe. Go to iTunes, hit the big subscribe button. That'll help us out. Also, we have show notes for this show. They'll be, fa- uh, they'll be found at www.adventuretravel.com forward slash podcast. So while you're there, try to um, join the mailing list. You'll never miss out on a podcast there, on an offer, anything to do with our trips, anything to do with our blog. It's all there. And uh, also, we have our sponsors to thank. They are Audible. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash ADVF radio to check out your free um, 30 days. And also, Adventure Fit Travel. Head to www.adventurefittravel.com. Check out what we got going on. See you next week.